tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Oh, dear, you're going to have to listen very fast. I got a lot to say today, a lot. So let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Well, before we go to the big book on the coffee table, I wanted to uh, just uh, remind you that that um, uh, the Pope has asked for uh, another day of prayer and fasting for peace in the Middle East on Friday, October the 27th. So let's all remember to pray that. And uh, a woman called in the other day wondering if we couldn't ch- change our schedule. And it's not easy to change a broadcasting schedule. It's a little bit like moving glaciers and, and, and you know, recalibrating the, the spinning of the earth. But she, she just thought we should say an extra rosary. And I, I did, yeah, you're allowed, if you listen to Family Rosary Across America, you're still allowed to say an extra one uh, for peace. And I, I think we need to remember what, what the Blessed Mother said at Fatima, that, that we should be praying the rosary for peace. And it's, it's a good thing to do. So I don't know that we can change our schedule, but we certainly can all pray a little more. Doesn't hurt. Well, that said, let's go to the big book on the coffee table. Right. That doesn't hurt either. <laughs> that doesn't hurt either. The voice in my head said, oh, sometimes when I preach long on it. Well, all right. This is, of course, uh, for some reason, I've got the wrong date. There, it's the 25th. So many people read the letter of the Romans and say we're saved by grace through faith and we're not saved by works. Now, I have ground this axe just about every day for the past week. When St. Paul says we're not saved by works, if you look at the context, he always means works of the law. Like, for instance, uh, you can't eat meat and milk on the same plate or at the same time, and you should never be wearing a garment that has both wool and cotton in it, or I suppose silk and cotton, too, because silk is an animal product. And um, in one or the other. And of course, you would never, ever, uh, uh, for instance, uh, what's another good? You'd never, ever use a clay pot into which a dead rodent had fallen, ever. Of course, I probably wouldn't anyway. But those are works of the law. That's what we read in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And St. Paul says, those aren't going to save you. And the letter is saying, Greeks and Jews are in the same boat. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're saved 
by grace through faith. And people have read that, especially during the, the Reformation, and said, well, that means you don't have to do anything to go to heaven. One reformer said, uh, uh, if you commit murder a hundred times a day and you're saved, you're saved. And that that goes against the very sense of Scripture. Jesus often seems to have said that uh, uh, you can lose your salvation. Uh, you may think you're saved, but you're not. Uh, whatever you did for the least of my brothers, you did for me. Depart from me. I never knew you. It's pretty clear. And St. Paul is saying, don't get me wrong here. He says, sin must not reign over your mortal bodies. It's interesting because the word to reign, we think of that as Queen Elizabeth doing that little, you know, may she rest in peace, that little figure eight hand wave. No, sin must not be king. The, the word is to be king. Uh, uh, sin must not king over your mortal bodies uh, so that you obey their desires. Uh, um, I, that's pretty clear. Shall we sin because we are not under the law? This is what I really want to drive at. You're not under the law, but under grace. I'm under grace, so I don't have to obey the law. I'm not under the law. No, you're under grace. I've told this story many times, but I will tell it again, because I think most of us don't understand what grace is. Grace, of course, are those rays of light that come through the clouds in the holy pictures. And grace is this wonderful feeling I get when I'm near Jesus. That's not grace. Actual grace is what God gives you in 24 hours to make you look like Jesus. Let us review. In Romans, the eighth chapter, we read those whom he first knew, he, were, he predestined not to go to heaven or hell, but he predestined them to go or predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. And this is also from the letter of the Romans that we are studying. Um, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the first of many brothers. In other words, God wants to adopt you. And in order to adopt you, he's got to make you look like Jesus. So what does Jesus look like? Well, we have a perfect description of Jesus in the fifth chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. The fruits of the Spirit are these. Love, peace, patience, joy. Uh, <laughs> the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit are the very picture of the personality of Jesus. If you could get in a time machine and go back to the carpenter shop in Nazareth, you wouldn't say, oh, what beautiful blue eyes he had, just like the calendar on the refrigerator. No, you'd say, he was so generous, he undercharged me. He was, he was so kind. He, was, he, he, puts, he put up with me. I'm a terrible customer. That's who Jesus was and is, and that's what we must become in order to be adopted by the Father. We must become remade in the image of Jesus. Grace is what God gives you every day, 24 hours a day, to make you look like Jesus. I will tell a story. I first must do a disclaimer. I have met many Romanians, and I have met Romanians who are heroic in their struggle for Christ in the church, especially in the days under the communist dictatorship. They're heroic people. However, there was one Romanian I met who I did not have such a good impression of, and I will tell you the story. One morning... I got up, went downstairs, this was when I was at St. Thomas of Canterbury, went downstairs to offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and I made the mistake as I passed through the office on the way to the passageway to the church of picking up the phone that was ringing. It was, of course, a hospital saying that someone was dying and needed the sacraments. <sighs> you know, being the saintly good priest 
uh, I am. I said, all right, I'll be there, but I got to say mass first. I hadn't even had a cup of coffee. How can one be genuinely holy before one has had a cup of coffee? But moving on, well, I went from the altar to the garage, to the car, drove to the hospital, and at the stoplight, just before the hospital, I'm sitting at the light, and bam, the car behind me ran right into me. I got out of my car. I looked at the dent in my back of my car. It matched all the other dents, and the car that had hit me was, I remember it distinctly, it was red, and it was, it was essentially rust held together with duct tape. And it was a small car, and this lanky fellow got out. And he looked at me, and I said to him, do you have insurance? And he said to me, Romanian. Do you have a license? Romanian, Romanian. And I thought, I can be polite in Polish. I can handle Spanish or Italian not well, but they're similar. Do you speak any of those languages? Romanian, Romanian. I am I got back in my car. Now the definition of grace is it is an undeserved favor, an undeserved gift. Well, I got in the car and I shook my hand at heaven and I said, I am trying to be a good priest and I haven't had a cup of coffee and I'm on the way to the hospital to share the sacraments with someone who you want saved and the little voice in said and I said, I don't deserve this. And the little voice inside said, of course you don't deserve this. This is an undeserved favor. What? What? You're saying this is grace? <sighs> you see, the Lord was trying to work in me patience and generosity and kindness, of which I have very little. He was trying to work something in me. That Romanian banging into the back of my car was grace. Grace is what God gives you in 24 hours to make you look like Jesus. That's actual grace. I remember this greeting card uh, series that was called Sherman on the Mount. It was a little, it was a Franciscan friar looking person or monk, and he was he loved the creatures of the forest, and they loved him back. And it, it, one card showed Sherman on the Mount standing on a little hill and all the little forest creatures uh, coming up the hill at him. And the caption was, Oh, Lord, help me to endure my blessings. That's grace. All right, let's look back. We are not under the law. 613 things that Moses said God wanted us to do. You do all 613 things, you check off the boxes, you're good. We are not under the law. We are under grace. In other words, grace is a much tougher master than the law. The law has a limit at 613 things. It's done. Grace has no limit. I may have given my tithe and my 10% and fulfilled the law, and the Lord says, yeah, but there's that poor guy who I want you to give a lot of money to. But I gave my tithe, Lord. You're under grace. You're not under the law. That word under is everything in this discussion. Under. The word subjugate is Latin, and it means under a yoke. When you are subjugated, you are under a yoke. You know, a yoke, the thing tied that's tied ties you to a, a wagon that you're pulling. 
the Greek word in the text hypo is exactly the same meaning as sub. It means under. You are under grace. You have a new master now. Not the law, but grace. And grace is going to ask of you more than the law ever would ask. You're never done with the requirements of grace. But I thought grace was this nice thing. It's very nice because it's going to make you look like Jesus. This may take a little work, but it's going to make you look like Jesus. That's the point. Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Of course not. We have to fulfill the law. We don't obey the law necessarily, but we fulfill it. Now, the Ten Commandments, so once again, uh, how come if you couldn't eat pork in the Old Testament, you can eat it in the New Testament? And the Old Testament said you can't commit adultery. So if we can eat pork, why can't we commit adultery? Because 10 of those 613 laws are natural law, and they reflect the nature of God. God is the giver of life, thou shalt not kill. They reflect the vision of God's vision of humanity. I would not be killed, so I would not. I should not kill. I, I would not be cheated on, so I should not cheat. I should not be lied about, so I should not lie. They fulfill the nature of humanity as God sees it, and they reflect the nature of God. Thou shalt not lie. God is truth, and so on. So those ten have not passed away. But the 603 laws, uh, especially when they have to do with ritual or... or uh, the, the setting aside of Israel, those laws passed away in the Messiah because he is our law. His way of life is our way of life. And God wants to conform us to him, which is a superior law than the law of Moses. That's what we believe. Now, the law of Moses is not to be set aside, St. Paul is saying in this whole letter. No, it's instructive. We fulfill it. Jesus did, said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So, all right. How do I fulfill the law of, of shotness? You can't have wool and you can't have cotton in the same vestment. Well, you could in the same article of clothing. You could in the high priest's belt. So how is that law fulfilled? Jesus combines that which cannot be combined. He brings together that which cannot be brought together. And the, the shotness, the separation, that's what that means, the law of shotness. That's over. That that I fulfill it by <laughs> becoming one with people who are different from me in the body of Christ, the church. So uh, all of this, someday I'm going to write how, how Jesus fulfilled the 603 laws of Moses <laughs> when I get some leisure time. But uh, um, that's the idea that, that, that we don't sin. St. Paul is saying clearly that, no, 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 I'm not saying that you, you don't have to obey law. I'm saying that, we're required, he's saying, we're required to do more than the law requires. And, you know, um, in a way, Jesus is saying this in, in the parable today, which I think also is a funny story. He talks about the, the servant in charge who starts getting drunk and beating the manservants and the maidservants. Everybody knows one. In the ancient world, they would have said that. And the word is slave. Um, and so, uh, um, I think that that's kind of uh, uh, almost a funny story. But then he says that uh, the master is going to require you to do certain things and not do others. And that's because we are slaves to Christ and no longer slaves to our own desires and hence slaves to the restrictions of the law. It's a little complicated, but as I say, I think the letter of the Romans is St. Paul trying to explain how Jews and Greeks can be in the same church in Rome. All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with letters.
Uh, and um, the phones will be open at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149, which is our Catholic Order of Foresters toll-free line. So thank you, Catholic Order of Foresters. 888-914-9149. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester. An Illinois Life Insurance Society not available in all states. No, you can't get blood from a turnip, no matter how hard you try. Because if you could, then Jesus sure would not have bled and died. So if you ever get salvation, you'll find you just can't earn well, it. And this is a song that advice, David sent in. Thanks, David. And uh, it's about this: why the sacrifice of Cain was not accepted, well, that of Abel was. And I've shared that, that the sacrifice of In order to make a covenant, you need a blood sacrifice. And Cain offered vegetables. You can't get blood from a turnip. So in a different way, this song is really stating my 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 interpretation of that text of scripture so i thought i had to play it for you that's the classic song you can't get blood from a turnip moving along now let's go to letters i got a letter from uh uh, uh i want to say chris we'll just leave it at that um who uh, wrote in that a dear friend has invited him and his wife to his daughter's same-sex wedding. And he'd heard I'd said something about it on the on the air. And, and uh, so I wanted to share that again. Why can't you go to a wedding like that? you got to be nice. You know, you got to be supportive of people. You have to support self-destructive behavior. Well, this is what I wrote back to, to this fellow. You're being asked to stand as witnesses, as is the whole congregation, for something you don't believe in. Jesus clearly defines marriage as a relationship between a man and a woman. You're his followers, and they're asking you to cease being his followers by denying what he teaches. The text in Matthew 19, 5 and 6 says, A man leaves father and mother and clings to his woman, which is the exact word the text uses in Greek, not wife, like most translations have it. You assume they're following their consciences, and you respect that. But you have to follow your conscience, and you ask that they respect that. And I don't, I, I don't say you, you're sinning, you're being evil, I don't know that they're sinning and being evil. I, you know, I mean, these are strange times and they're being told on all fronts that, oh, what you're doing is wonderfully brave and moral. I don't think it is. But, you know, to commit a mortal sin, you have to have a full turning of the, of the will and know that this is a mortal sin. We live in such morally confused times. And I'm not preaching a moral relativism. I'm saying that we who are Christians need to, to respect other people's consciences. Assume that they're acting according to their conscience. But at the same time, if they expect you to respect their conscience, you must expect them to respect your conscience. You have a conscience, and you must obey it. Uh, I love that movie, uh, 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 the movie version of the play Man for All Seasons. 
at which when Thomas More is finally, they get somebody to perjure themselves and say, Thomas More spoke against treasonously against the king. He says, well, now I will let you know what I think. I am on trial because I will not give my assent to the marriage. And we Christians are on trial because we will not give our assent to what we regard as false marriage. Maybe we're wrong. I don't think we're wrong. I've decided, as the song says, to follow Jesus. But they haven't. I'm a Christian, and I'm getting married in, in a same-sex marriage. No, you're not a Christian when you cease to follow Jesus. When you get ahead of him, you cease to be a disciple. You cease to be a follower. And Jesus defines marriage very clearly in Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6. For this a man leaves his father and mother. Marriage is an exclusive relationship. And clings to his woman. That's what the text says. Guinea, woman. It is a relationship between a man and a woman, genuinely a man and genuinely a woman. In the beginning, he made the male and female. Uh, and the two become, uh, they, they cling to each other. That's uh, permanence, that they cling to each other. They don't separate. And the last thing that makes a marriage valid, that the two become one flesh. doesn't say the two become one spirit, but they become one body. Where do you become one flesh? In your children. They are the flesh of a man and woman come together. So every marriage, even those marriages that cannot have children, they're still valid marriages because they allow the possibility. Permanence, exclusivity, openness to life, a man and a woman. That's how Jesus defines marriage. Maybe he was wrong. I don't think he was. I think he was the son of God and absolutely right. So I'll follow him. But when you asked me to participate in a wedding that defies Jesus' definition for wedding, you're asking me to deny Christ. and I will not do that. I cannot do that. Where would I go? He has the words of everlasting life. I hope that helps. All right, moving along. You know, but at the same time, we respect people and their, their consciences. You know, is that so hard to do? You must never be unkind, but you must be honest. Not about what they're doing, but about what you're doing. All right, let's move along. Uh, that answer probably makes no one happy. All right, where, where did I put? Oh, we're back to letters here. All right, did I? Oh, this one is. Um, oh, I want to save that for just a few minutes because I'm going to go on a bit of a tirade on that one. Okay, let's see this one. All right, Father, you have. This is from uh, Desiree. Uh, Father, have you, you mentioned you were raised knowing Jewish families and you've had Jewish friends as an adult, namely Rabbi Lefkowitz. Have you ever had the opportunity to be a Shabbos Goy? I most certainly have. I will never forget one high holy day when the light was falling off the, the, the pulpit to the Bema, upon the Bema, the, 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 what we would call the sanctuary. And Rabbi Lefkowitz's son ran down and got me saying, can you duct tape the light to the pulpit? We can't do it because, of course, it's a Sabbath. I said, sure. So I'm in my Roman collar and my, my yarmulke. I'm up there. And they had a very fancy schmancy canter from poor congregation, but they got a good canter. They have from the Holy City, Crown Crown Heights in New York. And uh, so I'm taping this and the canter's davening away. And he turns around and he literally jumped when he saw a Catholic priest taping the light to the Bema. And and I said to the rabbi, see, I told you I was your Shabbos guy. And then he said to the canter, He's our Shabbos Goy, nothing but the best. So that's what a Shabbos Goy is. If you, if you have something that must be done, you can pay a Gentile to do it. 
It's uh, getting around the law, but it's still obeying the law. I think that's really funny. Okay, um, this is something I want help with this. Uh, this is from D, and she asks, is Catholicism the only church that has a daily liturgy? Do other denominations have daily services? I don't think that they have that strong tradition of daily services. I know some Episcopal churches will do a Mass during the week. I don't know if it's on a daily schedule. You see, uh, we uh, priests in the Western Church come from the monastic tradition. Uh, uh, that, that when the Roman Empire fell, the monks were the only priests around, and they had daily Mass in the monasteries. The Orthodox churches, the monasteries do have a daily Mass, but that's for the monks. I, lay people can go, I, I believe, most monasteries, but the daily liturgy is uh, um, uh, only offered, as far as I know, in monasteries in the sacramental churches. And other other things like well the uh, the the Methodists they might have the Wednesday prayer meeting and the Thursday Bible study but it isn't quite the same as our daily mass so I would like to know if um, uh, that's a phone ring in the distance I'd have to the cord I'm on will not stretch to go there so just ignore it it's probably There's a telemarketer Yes, it's ringing. See, it stopped. It was a telemarketer. Telemarketers are like vultures swooping around us old people. Where was I? So if you know of any denomination, Christian denomination, that has a daily liturgy, you know, that, you know, we have the 8 o'clock mass, boom, 8 o'clock mass, boom, 8 o'clock mass. And if you have to cancel the 8 o'clock mass, it's like the earth has stopped spinning. But that brings me to another letter that I, I'd like to, uh, to discuss. This is from Nick, not not our Nick. This is Nick in Madison. Hello, Father. Can you explain to me who or what the spirit of Vatican II is? I'm unaware of previous church councils having a strange spirit attached to it. It seems to me that it is the spirit of the time filtered through the high, not filtered through the hierarchy, filtered through uh, everybody. So, and, and the hierarchy tried to hang tough at that time, but it was tough. The spirit of Vatican II. Um, that was something that everybody talked about, especially those people who had not read the documents of Vatican II. For instance, the first document about the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, does not envision a liturgy radically different from the liturgy of the thousand years that preceded it. It allows for vernacular, and it allows, you know, the language of the people, and it allows for, um, what else does it allow for? Uh, it allows for occasional contemporary uh, music of that of that community, but just occasionally. It still has uh, Gregorian chant and pride of place. The Latin language is pride of place. It changes very little about the liturgy, but the liturgical movement changed everything. And then people got a hold of what the liturgical movement put out, and they they beat it up with the spirit of Vatican II. In other words. <laughs> something entertaining. The spirit of Vatican II was, was something that people talked about, especially those who had not read the documents. Now, I was talking to one of my students today. <clears throat> He's ordained. He was one of my former students and a dear friend. And he is from the Diocese of St. Dymphna in the state of northern Vermont. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, but he was at a meeting in which they were having this great argument um, 
about whether they should have a harvest mass or a homecoming mass. I mean, this is a meeting of clergy, and I think this is a diocesan-wide event. We should call it a homecoming mass. No, it should be called the harvest mass. And meanwhile, the whole thing's going up in, in, in chaos. Um, we are facing situations in the world in the church of which we could not have conceived. And they're arguing about what to call a mass. You know, I, I remember someone, when I was young and very Pentecostal, I was big into charismatic masses. And then I realized, that's stupid. Mass is mass. Uh, someone came up to me and said, can you offer a charismatic mass? And I said, no, I can't. I can only offer a Catholic one. If you want to jump up and down and pray out loud, you know, do it reverently. I only, I can only offer a Catholic Mass. I remember my classmate, Father Brankin, someone came up to him and said, Father, what is the theme of this Mass? He said, how about the death and resurrection of Christ? Mass is Mass. It is the unbloody representation of Calvary. It doesn't have a theme. It isn't useful for a political statement. It is not useful uh, for anything but the worship of God. Even the readings are about the worship of God. <sighs> This might take a few a few days to go through this, but I was looking at some stats for the Diocese of St. Dymphna in uh, in northern the state of northern Vermont. And um, uh, in 1975, they ordained 37 people. In 2000, and uh, I think it was it was a 2022, they ordained two. And in 1975, they had. 1,261 diocesan priests, 1,140 order priests. Now they have 682 diocesan priests, half of what they had, but only 294, about a quarter, are under 60. Uh, they had 6,947 nuns in the Diocese of St. Dymphna. Now, the nuns did the heavy lifting in the in, in the church of my childhood. They were the ones who taught the children. They were the ones who maintained the parish uh, celebrations and everything. Uh, there's only 1,000, one-sixth, less than one. It's actually one-seventh of the nuns there were, 1,068 in 2023. We have more deacons. We only had 147 in 1975 in the Diocese of St. Dymphna. But now they have 457. There were 455 parishes in the Diocese of St. Dymphna, northern Vermont. And now there are 221, half. In 1990, 582,000 people went to Mass. That's when they started counting. Probably when the Diocese of St. Dymphna's had 2,200,000 people in the diocese, Probably a million went. Uh, now, in in uh, in twenty twenty two, there were two hundred forty nine thousand. In other words, about well, maybe maybe twenty percent of the people went to church. If you guesstimate a million in nineteen seventy five of a total Catholic population of two million two hundred thousand. What are you mentioning all this for? Well, I, I'm getting there. This is going to be a while. Be patient with me. You're such patient people. There are now, however, that means that in 1975, there were maybe 2,200,000 active people in the parish. Now there are 1,200 
active people in a parish, dividing this total population by the parishes. But here to me is the kicker that there were, uh, um, uh, in 1975, there were about 2000 masses, uh, offered. And now there are 1000. Well, it was, I guess, actually it was in, no, no, it was a 1,875 masses in 1975. Now it's 1,194. In other words, two-thirds of the masses. We have fewer parishes, fewer people going to church. We have fewer masses, but not that many fewer masses. I think it's time to face that the prophecy, and I call it a prophecy of Pope Benedict, is coming true. He said, in the future, we will have a smaller more committed church. Somebody called in a couple of weeks ago and said, shouldn't the pastor be consulting the parishioners about what masses are convenient for them? What? Yeah. Well, they're paying for the service, aren't they? No. No, they're not. Um, what masses are convenient? Can you picture the Blessed Mother saying, oh, I'm not going to go to Calvary. I'll, I'll go to the resurrection because... Oh, Calvary, the seating is awful, and I just don't like that choir. Mass is not a convenience. The way ma- Now, buckle your seatbelts. I'm going to say something that nobody's going to like. Nobody's going to like. When the church was at its high point, in a community, there was one Mass. You went to Mass with your whole community, which was probably your village. And you were a church together, and you identified with each other. You prayed together. Mass is not a convenience. Father, you can't cancel my Mass. I, but, yeah, you can, you can change the Mass schedule, but don't touch my Mass. I go to the 4 o'clock on Saturday because, well, it's convenient. I personally no way, think that, Jose. <laughs> exactly. I personally think that if, if you don't have the people, why, you know, there are places that, there just isn't room in the church, which is a thing we should study. Why are those places succeeding and others not? But, you know, we study places that are failing. It's like studying fat people to see how to lose weight. Um, don't study me to see how to lose weight. Study somebody who's skinny. Uh, but, you know, that, that, that we put in that mass for the overflow. There's no overflow. In fact, as I've said, Saturday night masses for congregations of 10 people. But don't dare cancel that mass. That's the get the grandma home early. It's the, it's the early bird special mass. It's just not convenient to go to a Sunday morning mass. Well, I work Saturday or I work Sundays. Well, maybe we should have a few evening masses. When I was a kid, mass was Sunday morning and you got there. Father, you can't cancel the Mass here. I'd have to drive 10 miles to get the Mass. How committed are you? I mean, I really think, and the reason I say this is a young priest who lives not far from me, different diocese, not St. Dymphna's or Rockford or Chicago, he's north of the Cheddar Curtain. He said, when I became a priest, I never thought I would be working out of my car. Parish life has become utterly unstable. We look at Mass as something to fulfill our Sunday obligation. Mass is, this Sunday obligation, I believe deeply in it, but it's something more. It's about the worship of God, not the convenience of a service rendered. I don't know if you understand what I'm driving at, but 
that just struck me that there are so many dioceses that ordain no one and a very large diocese a year or two ago ordained two that's that's incredible but why would a young man want to be a priest knowing that his life would be so unstable I'm being absolutely honest. I have never regretted one day in my life having become a priest. I regret a lot of things in my life. I've done a lot of stupid things. But having been ordained is not one of them. Unworthy though I am, I have the privilege of climbing the steps of the altar to offer the saving sacrifice of Calvary. It's worth doing. But if we portray the priesthood as a life of going to meetings... And living in your car without emphasizing the fact that it's a heroic life in which you give yourself to Christ, it's not going to get better. I think we need to do everything we can to reestablish the stability of parish life. And that might mean they cancel your favorite mass because Father has to say eight masses in four different parishes. It's going to kill him. And he's not going to end up being the pastor of a parish. He's going to be a functionary who drives from place to place. It's not the way the church was designed. It's not the way the church worked for a thousand years. And I think it's time to say, time out. Let's really think about this and not worry about whether it's a homecoming mass or a harvest mass. That's just my opinion. We'll go to a break. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. I'm going to get on the old turnpike and I'm going to ride. I'm going to leave this town till you decide. Which one you want the most, those opera stars or me? Milwaukee, here I come from Nashville, Tennessee. Well, speaking of Milwaukee, we're going to go to the word of the day. I love Milwaukee. Before I, before I share the word of the day, I want to remind you that the Feast of All Saints and All Souls is coming up. A big thing. Halloween is part of that celebration if you do it right and don't emphasize the weirdness of it uh but um we're we're having a novena and prayer for the holy souls you can i think you can register up to as many as 20 of your that's correct your beloved dead uh and just go to just go to relevantradio.com and flash or slash souls you'll find it um and and uh, you know i i've uh, I'm sure you've heard me tell stories about people I've known who died and lived to tell about it. And they talk about that they can hear the prayers of people praying for them. You stand when you pray for those who've gone before. You stand with them before the throne of God, which I think is really a great privilege. But that said, <laughs> one of the I wanted to mention, one of the priests at this meeting at the Diocese of St. Dimpton in the state of northern Vermont, shook his head and he said this whole thing is a dumpster fire i thought that was really funny describing this grand meeting and the the bureaucracies of religion that were thinking this was at all important he just shook his head and said this is a dumpster fire i thought that was pretty vivid well that said word of the day uh, we're at the word of the day the gong has already 
there's the dog gong again. Did you notice that in the gospel, uh, we we read the the servants of the slave. The word isn't servant; it's slave. My master is 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 delayed in coming. He begins to eat, and it says the men servants and the maid servants. The word in Greek is with my fellow with his fellow slaves to eat and drink and get drunk. It's, that's a kind of odd translation because what it really says is he eats and he drinks with the drunkards. And the word, of course, is drunkard, which is in Greek is from the verb methuo, which means to to get snockered. And the reason that I use this as the word of the day is uh, very often you will find uh, people from uh, certain religious groups who say that Jesus did not drink wine. Well, clearly he did. Well, wine in those days didn't have alcohol. Hard to get drunk on grape juice, let me tell you. Um, unless it's very old grape juice. No, wine was wine, and uh, drunkenness was a problem in the ancient world, just as it is in ours. And if you do have a problem with drink, one of the finest programs for getting sober is Alcoholics Anonymous. And for families of people who uh, have problems in the family about that sort of thing, uh, uh, Al-Anon. So at any rate, let's go to, uh, let's go now to where are we going uh, callers. Sien is ringing. Let me click on that button, and 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 we have Tim from Jacksonville, Florida. Tim, what can I do for you? Well, I've learned a lot just being on hold, listening to the show. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> the, oh dear. In, in, to, in today's in today's New York Times, there's a full page uh, article comparing a modernist parish with a traditional Orthodox parish and a major archdiocese. Mm-hmm. And the Orthodox uh, priest, um, he uh, is says many very frank things about the state of yes. things. And I, mm-hmm. I wonder how are people, spo- how are Catholics in the pews supposed to process this? Well, that's a good question. I actually read the article. So, uh, um, yeah, it's it's how are we supposed to process it? You know, again, uh, I think that that I don't know if you've ever heard me say this, but we're a Catholic church, a universal church, and we're not just universal in space, but in time. And I think if we if we understand the meaning of the word Catholic, a Greek word meaning universal. There should be no abrupt change from what has gone before. There can be an organic growth, but an abrupt change when we cut our, our you know, everybody's talking about, well, we got to completely change the church. Those people cease to be Catholic. If they say genuinely, what is the Lord saying about what we believe and how to best express it to the world, uh, then you're still Catholic. You're still part of a universal church. But the trend toward modernity is uniquely modern and was once uniquely American. There is actually someone, I can't remember who, but someone in the advertising business who invented the phrase new and improved. New and improved. They changed the box. It's new and improved. And we have a mania with the new. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters talks about that, that dread of the same old thing. Whereas the same old thing is the substance of human life. We live in a cyclical pattern. And, and I think that, that, you know, how are we to process it? Uh, asking, is it Catholic? 
Is this part of our universality? Is this part of the church as she has been for these 2,000 years? Or is this simply a, a kind of uh, fear of the same old thing? That's how I process it. How in touch with this? Now, I, you know, I, I think the Novus Ordo can be done with beauty and dignity. I don't think it's the problem of the Novus Ordo. I think it's an attitude that we want something new and exciting. It's, it's the love of novelty that is the problem. And, and that's kind of how I think about it. I don't know. Does that help you in any way? Does that answer any questions? Uh, that is helpful. And I should just add that the, the traditional um, Orthodox priest um, does not say the Latin Mass. No, no, he doesn't. He, uh, yeah, I, I know him. I know him fairly well. And he's a, a very uh, devoted man and a very brave man. Um, and uh, he has been very, very ill. So keep me in your prayers. So uh, good fellow. All right. Well, Tim, thanks for calling in. I'm honored that you listen and hope I was of some help. God bless you. Let's go now to April from Rockville, Maryland. April, what can I, how can I, whatever, help you? Hi. Thanks, yes. thanks for my call. Yes. Um, I'm wondering how do you deal with difficult people from a Catholic perspective, like people who may try to be controlling or rude or... Sure. Well, you know, it's very it's a very simple answer. Uh, it's in the word forgive. The word forgive means to let go. Sometimes you let go of the fault, but if someone someone is uh, a temptation to sin, uh, then you sometimes have to let go of the relationship. We are not obliged to be in relationship with people who are harmful to us. We forgive them. We pray for them. We love them. We will their good, but we needn't take tea at 10 and 4 on Fridays with them. So to forgive is to let go. And sometimes we have to let go of certain relationships, but genuinely let go. You know, that, that um, you know, sometimes we want to get the last word. Don't want to get the last word. Just back off from the relationship. That would be my advice in it. So I hope that helps a little bit, April. Now, why don't we move on to Mike from Goodwin, South Dakota. Are you with us, Mike? What can I do for you? Yep. Oh, I heard a priest once say, uh, before baptism, a child, as soon as God uh, creates in his bare hands a soul, the child inside the woman, until it's baptized, belongs to the devil. Now, may I, I have think your that's opinion nonsense. on that? You have my opinion. That's nonsense. Uh, that, that, in fact, is the Bible would seem to say the opposite, that uh, every firstborn who, who uh, comes from the womb belongs exclusively to God. Uh, nothing, the scripture says also elsewhere, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God, that this is God's world and everyone in it belongs to God. Uh, that child can make the decision, you know, the, uh, to, to, to go over to the dark side, shall we say, but um, no, no, everything belongs to God. Another verse in scripture, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That that I think that that's nonsense. That that they don't belong to the devil. Um, uh, I was never taught that, and I, I can't believe it. So I hope that helps a little bit, Mike. Also, let's let's yeah, move. Then he go also on. said the Holy Spirit does not come into the child until it's baptized. That that I would say is true. That's true. The Holy Spirit is not 
it doesn't reside in the person, but the Holy Spirit hovers around him, I would say. So, uh, but the Holy, no, the Holy Spirit is, is only dwelling in people who are in a state of sanctifying grace. In other words, uh, baptism conveys the Holy Spirit. About that, I would agree. Well, thanks for calling in. And let's go to Billy from Cranston, Rhode Island. What can I do for you? Hi, Father. Thank you so much for taking my call. This is the second time I've spoken to you. I think the first time I asked a question that you weren't too happy about. But I, uh, I, I, my mom, my mom is a big, um, you know, Catholic school, Catholic everything. In the past year, I've been listening to you guys for a year straight. And the only question I have today is, what is it like? Do you know what it's like in purgatory? Because my mom told me, you know, heaven and hell, but she can't answer that question, what it's like in purgatory. I've never been there, so I don't know, but I can guess. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Letters, a book which I recommend about three times an hour, especially as read on YouTube by John Cleese of Monty Python and A Fish Called Wanda, he describes purgatory as standing before the light and the love of God. And everything that is not light and love in us is burned away by the fire of God's love. And mystics have described that as a rather painful process. I've also heard people who who uh, talk about the judgment. And I suspect that purgatory and the judgment are the same thing, if not closely related. Um, and they say they experience all the pain they caused. That's daunting. I've caused a lot of pain in my life. And... I'm going to experience all that pain and repent of it. However, the great difference, the great difference between hell and purgatory is in purgatory there is hope and there can be joy because there's hope. Um, that, that, that we used to think of purgatory as sort of hell's front porch. It's really, or hell's back porch. It's really heaven's front porch. And uh, as we stay, I suspect that as we stand before the light and love of God, that we are transformed into who we're supposed to be. That's how I think of purgatory. So I would recommend that you read uh, uh, Screwtape Letters, in which in the last chapter, C.S. Lewis, though not a Catholic, describes purgatory beautifully. I will. I, so I hope that helps. Yes. Oh, God bless. And I yeah, it's really us. easy to Thank find Thank you so it. much. God bless, Billy. We got um, just a minute, Regina. What can I do for you? Oh, no. I might need a dissertation. In Romans, um, you know, because Adam, one man, ah, sinned, yes, we're, and then, all, we're all saved. Yeah, but yes. and then Jesus, you know, but why is the second greater than the first? It seems like we just break well, even if that. You know, is, we didn't have anything to do with either of them. No, well, that's a funny thing. Uh, sin is an inheritance and grace is a gift. But uh, what, G, what Paul is saying, I, I believe his whole rationale is trying to create a way that Jews looking at their own way of thinking can say Greeks can be Christians too because the attitude was God only loves us and you know he St Paul is saying he loves the Greeks too everybody inherits sin from Adam so everybody can inherit heaven through Christ and Christ is greater than Adam because he didn't sin He's not only that, he's the son of God, but in his humanity, he didn't sin. So he, he won what Adam lost. That's why he's greater. But it isn't a universal salvation thing. St. Paul's clear on that.